Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to season two. Before we start, I wanted to let you know about a cool opportunity. For the next two weeks, we're running a limited time offer on our Patreon page. All patrons that donate $10 a month or more before September 12th will get access to a live video chat with us this fall. So come and join us and talk about what happened in the season so far and help us decide what's coming next. Go to patreon.com slash bigbio to donate. It goes a long way to support the podcast. Okay, here's the first episode of season two. Every spring, male sage-grouse gather on the plains in the western United States looking for mates. If you're not from that part of the world, you might be asking, what's a male sage-grouse? So imagine a big chicken wearing a fluffy white scarf around its neck with a wide tail that rises up in a fan shape, almost like a peacock. And like peacocks, these males try to attract females by putting on a show. They fill up air sacs in their chest, which produces a weird noise. Then they dance around like a fat and feathered Justin Timberlake. Gail Petroselli, who studies this song and dance, is a behavioral ecologist at UC Davis, and she's interested in how individual variation in animal signaling and communication affects mate choice and eventually reproductive success. Since Darwin first came up with the idea of sexual selection, scientists like Gail have been trying to figure out why organisms make themselves so conspicuous to predators when natural selection should make obvious traits like dances and loud songs incredibly rare. Often these traits appear to help individuals pick the best mates. Although there are other ideas out there, which we discuss with Gil later, many scientists think that these traits tell potential mates about good genes or parenting ability. For example, females that make good choices can help their male offspring look sexy if bright feathers have some strong genetic basis. Mate choice is much more complex than many scientists originally thought. For instance, a male sage-grouse can't just dance like no one is watching. Someone is watching, and gyrations that are too frantic could scare off females before he gets a chance to mate. Anybody who's ever watched animal courtship, you know, human or otherwise, in the wild knows that there's variation among individuals and in the degree to which we pull this off, right? So um, some are just better than this. So, you know, you can imagine a male that has beautiful, flashy traits, but then goes barreling right up to the female and scares her away before he even has a chance to put on his show. So there's all these other kind of traits that are under, probably under sexual selection or, you know, um, and so we've been trying to measure them and quantify them. And they're really hard to quantify when you just study natural behavior because both the male and female are behaving and interacting. And so that's where the robot comes in because we can control one side of that conversation. In nature, it's often really hard to study things like sexual selection. You can't ask bright males to dance less or tone deaf ones to sing better, just as you can't ask females to give scary or scruffy looking males just one more glance. You have to work with what variation is already out there, which really limits what you can do in experiments. So enter Gail and her robot birds. To figure out what part of female behaviors males attend to, Gail created female robots. She does the taxidermy herself, and you can see some of Gail's cybirds on our website, www.bigbiology.org. As Gail explains later, there have been major efforts to protect sage-grouse habitat as it disappears for natural gas drilling and other human activities. To many, the sage-grouse story is a successful one, in particular a great example of how protecting one species can benefit whole ecosystems. Even still, those gas wells generate a lot of noise, and Gail has been interested in learning how noise pollution affects animal signaling and fitness more generally. These interests in noise pollution aren't limited to sage-grouse either. 
Galen or students have also been studying noise pollution impacts on tree swallows and bowerbirds and other species for years. In most cases, sounds emanating from roadways, gas wells, or other anthropogenic sources appear to be negatively affecting wildlife health. On this episode of Big Biology, we talk with Gail about how sexual selection research has evolved since Darwin's days and why debates still rage over mate choice. And we'll also talk with her about what this complexity means for understanding how we and other species think about beauty and what anthropogenic effects like noise pollution mean for sexual selection. I'm Art Woods. And I'm Marty Martin. You're listening to Big Biology. So tell us something about what sexual selection is and some of your favorite charismatic examples. Yeah, well, so natural selection is really all about um, traits that help animals to stay alive. So like coloration that helps animals to blend in so they're less likely to be detected by a predator or muscle function or physiology that helps animals to escape from predators, um, immune systems that help animals to stay alive. Um, whereas sexual selection is all about improving competition over mates. And so this can play out in a few different ways. The dominant pattern is that it's uh, males for competing for access um, to the opposite sex. And so um, that can be, you know, locking antlers or bashing heads together or fighting in some direct way. It can also include a lot of signaling. So, um, you know, like birdsong, a lot of birdsong functions um, in territoriality. So males will sing to define their territory and deter rivals. And so that's one way that sexual selection can play out. And the other way that sexual selection can play out is um, through mate choice. So when one sex is choosy, that means the other sex uh, is going to be showing off, trying to basically compete by outsexying their rivals. So rather than directly beating up their rivals, they're trying to be sexier than their rivals so that they're the ones that are chosen by the females. Well, hey, let's. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the the history of ideas about just why sexual selection happens in the first place. And you know, I think all of us can come up with a, a sort of easy answer, right? It's, it's competition for mates or matings, and you know, competition among sexes between sexes. But let's just talk briefly about a few of the really major kind of theory ideas about why sexual selection happens. And maybe you can start by talking about what what did, what did Darwin think about sexual selection and, and how did he incorporate that into his ideas about evolution by natural selection? Yeah. So, um, I mean, it, it is amazing how much Darwin gets right <laughs> in, uh, in, in all things, um, in biology. And so he, you know, he didn't have the concept of genetics that we have now, but he was, he was thinking in terms of what we might call the good genes hypothesis in the sense that these kinds of signals may say something about the quality of the individual. So more vigorous animals may be able to produce better displays that the females find more attractive. He also talked a lot about just aesthetics. And so um, he talked about the fact that these might be, you know, sexual charms and charms alone and that it, it didn't necessarily have to say something about the male. So he really talked about those two possibilities. Um, and, uh, and he really, yeah, he emphasized this sort of idea of aesthetics, which is, I think it's taken a while for biologists to come around and, and look at that idea again, the idea of aesthetics, um, cause it's a human centric term, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But it's really just capturing the, the, you know, sensory 
world of the organism, right? And what that, what attracts that individual. Um, and so I think he, he got a lot of things right, even if he used different terms than we do now. Um, but now we have other hypotheses that come into play as well. But, um, but those two main ones um, were there from the early, you know, proposal of the idea in Darwin's yeah, time. Yeah. The, the idea of aesthetics in, in animals seems, you know, both super interesting and kind of dangerous, right? Because it, it feels like a really loaded term that's very anthropocentric. Um, so, yeah. so how do you how do you determine what's aesthetically pleasing or not to an animal, and, and is it you know getting getting into their umwelt and uh... <laughs> yeah back to umwelt yeah and so um, I mean so it's interesting because uh, because if you I mean there's always this danger of anthropomorphism and we try to avoid only looking at things through our own eyes and that's the idea of the umwelt itself is to to remember that the animal may be looking at things in a very different way. And so, um, so it is very, it, it's dangerous to use those human centric terms, but at the same time, those terms like what else do we have? mean I mean, a lot. <laughs> and yeah. they, they, um, they call to mind a lot of different aspects of, you know, things that we've learned about how humans appreciate art and how we sense and view the world. And so if we totally stay away from those terms, you end up, um, you know, missing out on some interesting synergy between different fields. And so um, I've, I've kind of come around to careful use of, <laughs> of terms like that. <laughs> yeah. um, but it's, it's a really interesting question trying to understand what is aesthetically pleasing to an animal and why, or a non-human animal, and, and why would that be? And why is there variation among individuals? And So, so how do you do it? Yeah. Well, a lot of the ways we do this are, are you know, usually the first step is going out there into the natural world and measuring all the traits of these individuals and finding out which one is mating the most or something like that. If we're trying to understand what is most sexually attractive to the females, then you can try to figure out what traits it is that they're choosing in their, in their mates. Um, and so that gives us some idea of which traits are under active sexual selection, which are the ones that are affecting reproductive success at that at that time. Um, and so that gives us some ideas of, of where to look at it. But there's also some really interesting questions about that you can really kind of get at in, in the lab where you can look at this more experimentally and, and say, well, what happens if we remove one of those traits? Is the rest of the package still interesting? Or how do these different kinds of traits that these males have interact to influence female choice? Um, and how does the female's preference vary with things like sensitivity, visual sensitivity, um, or processing power or cognitive power of the brain. There's all sorts of different factors that may determine what is aesthetically pleasing. And I, th I think that's one of the really interesting questions right now and in sexual selection. Can I ask about um, a lower tech type of option? And this is a half-baked question that just came up a minute ago, so maybe it's a silly thing. But um, has anybody ever asked whether sort of the female... Males that are preferred by females are the same ones that humans would call beautiful. Yeah, you know, systematically oh, among individuals within the same species. Yeah, uh, we actually a, a colleague of mine did that with bowerbirds, and I don't know that it ever got published, but um, but it, it it was it was totally true in that species. And so um, the bowerbirds are they're this fantastic group of birds found in um, Australia and New Guinea and Indonesia and other areas in that area. And the males build this two-walled structure called the bower, and the uh, female will stand inside the bower, and the male does a whole song and dance for her and shows her different decorations and all these things. And um, and when we would walk across the population, the males have their bowers about 100 meters apart scattered in the forest. 
And we can walk through and pretty much tell you who's going to be the guy that mates and who isn't going to mate. Because the ones that we found attractive were they're symmetrical. They have nice fine sticks that are all about the same size and they're well woven. They have a nice platform out in front and tons of decorations. And those were absolutely (laughs) right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Those were the ones that we found most aesthetically pleasing, right? So the most attractive. And and it was pretty much what the females found most attractive. The sage grouse, I can't say that I can look out there and pick the winner. Sometimes you can see one guy is just more vigorous than the rest, but it's not like he just looks, you know, hugely different like we can see in the bowerbirds. So in some cases it's easier to see those differences that the females are seeing. In other cases it's not. But I, uh, there's another species of bowerbird, um, uh, the spotted bowerbird, where the males... You know, they build these scrappy little bowers and they decorate it with rusty nails and sheep vertebrae and like just all sorts of, you know, <laughs> this is, this metal. Is the Halloween one, isn't it? It's kind, kind of the yes, goth birds. Exactly, yeah. right. Yeah. This is the metal species. And so so they decorate it in this very different way. And then um, and the males basically just screech and scream at the female during courtship. And they run back and forth and throw things. <laughs> so they're throwing decorations and screaming. And so you're watching this and thinking, that I mean, it's, it's not aesthetically. It's fascinating, <laughs> but it's not aesthetically <laughs> pleasing to us at all. Whereas in that other case, um, you know, the ones that are most attractive to the females are attractive to us. So I think there are going to be cases where it aligns with our interests in aesthetics, and other cases where it doesn't. Hey, I want to, um, we're going to move on to some other stuff, but uh, just while we're on historical ideas, I want to ask about just one more, and that is Fisher's ideas about runaway sexual selection and mm-hmm. the evolution of these just, you know, super crazy traits on which you get pushback from natural selection. You already mentioned that at the beginning, but, you know, so, so I guess, first of all, what is runaway sexual selection and then why and when do you bump up against the limits of that and get pushback from natural selection? Yeah, so the idea of, um, yeah, it's called Fisherian selection or runaway sexual selection. Runaway is one scenario that can emerge out of it. But, um, but basically, you start out with some preference in the female uh, and some trait in the male that both have a genetic basis. And just by virtue of there being a preference and some traits, there's going to be some individuals that mate more that, you know, that have those traits. And so, Individuals with that trait that happens to be preferred are going to have a mating advantage because they can mate with females who either care or the females who couldn't care less. And so just by having that trait, they suddenly have an advantage, even if it tells the female nothing about his quality. Um, that male will have a mating advantage. And so he'll pass on those genes of, of that display trait. And, um, and you know, the, the trait for the preference just gets dragged along with it basically. Um, so males with so the traits, reinforcing each other. Yeah. So they re- it's a positive feedback loop. Um, and so it's, you know, it's indirect selection on the, the preference just gets dragged along, but the trait itself is what's under um, the right. display trait. Like, so whatever it is, the flashy display that the male is producing is what's actually under selection. And so that makes a lot of sense. But then why, why do you get these crazy traits in peacocks and not house sparrows? Like why, why does it happen in some lineages and not others? Yeah. Um, 
it's a great question. So there's all sorts of life history traits that end up, you know, putting birds in with different kinds of mating systems. But the, the two that you just gave, the peacock has what's called a lek breeding system. And so I, I've been studying species that breed on leks. And so lek, L-E-K, is a Scandinavian term that means to play. But um, if you watch these animals, they are not playing. <laughs> they are dead serious what they're doing out there. But, um, but they gather together and the males will puff up and strut around. So this is what peafowl do. The males will, you know, show off their traits. The sage grouse that I study now are doing the same basic thing. And females will visit this lek to comparison shop for a mate. And once they decide who they want to mate with, they mate with him on the lek. And then that's the end of their relationship. The female will go away. She has her own nest. She takes care of the young on their own. So the one example of the one of our most, you know, he was he's legendary in our sage grouse study. Um, this one male in one year made it. Oh, he made it well over 130 times during that breeding season, which is just a few months long. But most of those matings happen in a very short window. And, and in one epic day, which was the peak of breeding on that lek, he made it 37 times during the few hours that I was out there watching. My team was oh, out there wow. watching. And 23 of those matings were in a single 23-minute long period of time, during wow. which he mated once a minute for 23 minutes. And so, um, so his reproductive success is huge. And so... That means that there's going to be really strong selection on whatever females want, right? Whatever females want is going to be totally overrepresented in the next generation because of that mm -hmm. strong selection. Whereas in, um, you know, in sparrows where they're pairing up and raising the young together, there may be some cheating going on. There's still opportunity for sexual selection, but it's not as strong. Because a guy who's, you know, more attractive in that species or a female, it can, it can be either males or females under sexual selection, but, um, but individuals that are more attractive, it just don't have the opportunity to mate that much more. And so you just don't have sexual selection yeah. acting yeah. as strongly right. in those species. Right. Was it obvious why this sage grouse, uh, you know, was so successful? What, what did the females want based on what this guy had? Yeah, um, he was pretty extraordinary. No, none, <laughs> none of us liked him as an individual. Like, <laughs> like everybody just kind of thought he was huh. a jerk. Because he reminded me, if I if I had to totally, I mean, completely anthropomorphizing just here. Just go for it. If I wanted to imagine him as a human being, he would have, you know, driven up to Starbucks and his BMW and gotten out. And while he was ordering rudely, you know, his, I don't know, It'd probably be like a caramel macchiato or something, but he would have, you know, he'd be making a million dollar deal by Bluetooth on his phone. And so he's like, you know, he's clearly doing something right <laughs> within the boundaries of, right. of how we define success in this country, but you don't necessarily like him. <laughs> so that, awesome. was, that was kind of how we all thought about that guy um and so uh but he was just he strutted like a madman he just looked like you could tell he had so much more energy he was just running around yeah. crazy and so he would when there were females around he just strutted and he seemed to be able to keep strutting at a pretty high rate all the time when there were females around. And most males, when there's a competing male sort of impinging on his territory, they'll run over and, and they'll sometimes end up in these face-offs that last for half an hour or they'll fight. Whereas this guy would just run over and punch the other guy in the face and turn around, <laughs> run back and just 
keep strutting and just miss a single strut. So there was wow. something special about him. It's not always that obvious who's going to be the top guy, but he was definitely yeah. somebody that we all... Sounds like a charming jerk. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Jerk. And we, we, we tried <laughs> some combo. experiments that year. We were trying to study... So I, we have robotic females. And so we were trying to see if we send out a robotic female to another male and a real female shows up, will she go hang out with the robot and is she more likely to then mate with that male or recorded by that male because the robot is there so we were going to try to do these experiments on mate choice copying but we couldn't get females to pay attention to anybody but that guy because everybody <laughs> that would show up just like he was like a black hole and he just pulled wow. all okay. the hands Dale I think you've been him. doing this research too long because you just threw out the fact that you had robot grouse that you yeah. used in the system as if that was no big deal you did what? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so um, these are fembots, and so I've been using these <laughs> sort of female um, robot birds since I got started studying bowerbirds for my dissertation. And so they're basically these are lecking systems. As I said, there's there's really strong selection on males to be you know particularly showy, but the males are pretty indiscriminate in their mating in this system, right? This is. Not always. I'm not. Not all males. Hashtag right. Um, but they're <laughs> the males are pretty indiscriminate, and so they're you know when there's no females out there, they're sometimes trying to mate with dried cow pies and the sage grouse. So you know they're really, <laughs> really um, super keyed up to mate, and so they're not super picky, and so we can fool them with a female sage grouse. Fooling a female sage grouse with a male robot would be nearly impossible, and we haven't even tried. But um, but. So we use female birds um, in these species where we can get away with it, basically. And then uh, what that allows us to do is to control one side of this conversation between males and females. So we want to know how they're interacting and how the ability to interact influences their success in breeding. And so we can send the robot out there and... Um, and it's, it's basically a, we have the ability to control what the female is saying to the male and we can see how he responds. So it's like a playback experiment, which is one of the oldest tools in the toolkit of animal behaviorists is, um, you know, we go out and we record a bird song and then we play it to some other bird and see what they do. Do they get angry? Do they fly away? And that tells us something about what that signal sort of means to the animal. Um, and so we're doing basically that, but with these sort of movements and gestures. Um, and so and it also allows us to just, you know, manipulate where a female is. And um, so you can't really, you know, we can't control what real female sage grouse do. They're going to do what they do. And so this gives us some control over that, that conversation. So it's, it's a pretty powerful tool, but it, it's not something that has been widely used because it's hard to pull off and it doesn't work in, in all systems. In all it's systems. hard to make good robots. It's hard to make good robots, and um, and it, if you make a bad robot and the animals don't respond to it, then you can't really get a dissertation that just says, I made a crappy robot, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and then wow. they didn't like it, right? Have, and so you could invest a huge amount of time building one of these, and yeah. if it doesn't work, it, and the birds it, it really doing, doesn't yeah, work. Yeah, yeah, that, um, that can happen. And so, yeah, it's oh. a risky thing. <laughs> You've done this, though, in, in the bowerbirds, too, right? Yeah. Robot bowerbirds? Okay. So there's yeah. a couple of species. How many different species have you tried it in? I mean, it, those sort of the two winners and... 65 losers that <laughs> you've never uh, shared. Well, in birds, those are the only two that I've okay. done it with. But there have been a few okay. other studies in birds that have used used robots <laughs> successfully. Um, and so, yeah, the Bowerbird robot was the first the first one. And I, I happened to just be right at the time when that technology was, you know, where it was possible to miniaturize robotics mm -hmm. enough to fit inside of mm -hmm. Of, you know a female bird and so um so that was the first time we did that and i you know it seemed at the time like okay we're in this new 
cusp of new technology and this is going to become a, a standard method in the toolkit of animal behaviorists, but it really has not taken off in the way that you might expect because it just is really hard to fool a real animal. And if it's mm-hmm. going to, if a thing is going to move, then it has to move right or you're going to freak the, freak them out, right? There's the uncanny valley that we have in, in, you know, when we're watching, right. um, uh, computer animation or looking at robots if it's if it's moving kind of like us but not quite right we have an aversive response it's an, it's right. not not good and so i think the same thing can happen with robotics so yeah. if you're going to build a robot it has to be good and so it's it's taken off with um with frogs and fish and lizards where you can basically take a rubber mold of that animal and paint it and it looks almost <laughs> identical good enough Right? I mean, it looks really, really accurate. And then you can have it doing the simple movements that those animals do. And so that has actually, you know, taken off more in, in that in those species. But birds are harder. Feathers are complicated. So if you, so if you look forward, you know, five or 10 years and advances in robotics, uh, I mean, these things are getting better, right? So is, is the day still coming or is it just yeah. going to be too hard? Um, I mean, I think the what's holding us back is not necessarily the technology with robotics because I mean we already have the technology to do some pretty amazing things with robotics um, but it's getting it to look real and um, and the feathers and the the movements and just getting that to look natural so I mean I, I suppose as the technology improves you can you can make those movements more natural or, or at least will get cheap enough that animal behaviors can afford to try right because mm-hmm. <laughs> right now that that cutting edge of technology is probably behind the re- beyond the reach of most animal behavior budgets. But um, mm-hmm. but I, I I think yeah the hardest part is um, getting it to move right. And so I I've spent hours and hours. This is like my, my twisted arts and crafts project. And I had a background. I was in, when I was an undergrad. I studied art and. And, you know, I never knew how or when it would become useful. And this is where it, it turned out to be useful <laughs> in off. making these, you know, realistic um, female birds. And so um, I spent hours and hours just, you know, tweaking little tiny things to get it to look right. And I ended up, you know, for the neck, when you want the bird to move forward and the feathers on a natural bird, you know, a real bird would just lay nicely. And But you can't do that in a, in a robot because the skin dries. I'm using taxidermied. Um, animals. And so I ended up using a pair of Spanx, which are, you know, like just hardcore, you know, women's pantyhose that hold everything in. And so it's very strong, um, you know, nylon, stretchy nylon. And uh, I ended up using that around the neck and, you know, stitching the little feather sections on there so that as it moves, it, it looks natural. And I mean, you know, you can figure some things out, but even then it's still not going to be, even with Spanx, it's still not going <laughs> to be. Spanx totally only gets you part of the way there. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Amen. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Well, there's there's so much that we could talk about with Spanx and its many uh, uses in sexual (laughs) selection. But um, can we, uh, let's see if you can help resolve the Lek paradox. Hmm. So why isn't everybody this sort of, uh, what do you call it, macchiato-consuming, million-dollar deal-making grouse? Yeah. Where that, that was, I think that was Fisher's idea too, right? That, that eventually everybody should come to be the same. So where does the variation 
how does variation persist? Yeah, so I, I mean, it's an excellent question. If you can imagine one guy passing on that many genes to the next generation, why is the next generation not all little clones of that same male? Um, and I, you know, there's still there's a number of different people, you know, who come up with different answers to this question, and probably there's there's multiple mechanisms. There's not just one thing, but the main the main mechanism that I think is the most compelling is this idea that. These males are out there doing this super complicated dance. So they have to spend the whole morning out there. They've got all this crazy plumage and other displays, but they're doing this dance over and over and over again all morning long. And in order to do that, they're drawing on so many different systems. So it's their efficiency and strength of their muscles. It's their, um, you know, their... What's the word? Cardiovascular Cardiovascular. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah cardiovascular performance. Um, there's their immune system. So whether they've been able to fight off pathogens to get out there, they've had to avoid predators. They've had to forage well. They've had to be able to metabolize the food that they've gone out and selected. Um, there's going to be some aspects of their, um, their outward traits, you know, their phenotype that's going to be determined even by their mom and what their mom did. So there's so much genetic variation to tap into. So, you know, when one guy is out there doing really, really well, it's, there's not just one set of genes that are pulling that off, right? There's so many different systems and there's genetic variation in each of those systems and you're drawing on all of it. Um, and you're also going to have change in the environment over time. So some years when we're out there studying these birds, there's a drought and food is scarce. And the individuals that thrive in that year might be different than the individuals that thrive in a year when everything's flush. Um, and so you have fluctuation over time. Um, and so these are all the ideas of, of how we maintain this. Um, so they okay. do all end up looking pretty similar, right? I mean, they have this similar suite of traits, um, but there's still variation in there. It's sort of know, all the details. And all these other, all yeah. these other things, yeah. Right. How, how important is it that they read cues from the females that they're they're displaying to? Yeah, so that's been one of the big questions that, um, that I've been looking into throughout my career and that um, people in my lab have been in, investigating. And, and that's where the robot females come in very handy. So, um, so you know, we, we think about the peacock as our poster child of sexual selection where they've got these big, flashy, you know, train that they expand and they, they shimmer and they do all these amazing things. And so those are the kind of classic sexually selected traits, the bright colors and patterns and songs and, uh, and dances. And so we've been interested in, uh, in the, basically the social skills, right? So how the ability to interact appropriately and um, read these signals and cues come into play. And, um, and anybody who's ever watched animal courtship, you know, human or otherwise, in the wild, knows that there's variation among individuals and in the degree to which we pull this off, right? So um, some are just better than this. So, you know, you can imagine a male that has beautiful, flashy traits, but then goes barreling right up to the female and scares her away before he even has a chance to put on his show. So there's all these other kind of traits that are under, probably under sexual selection or, you know, um, and so we've been trying to measure them and quantify them. And they're really hard to quantify when you just study natural yeah. behavior because both the male and female are behaving and interacting. And so that's where the robot comes in because we can control one side of that conversation and give all the males the I, same I female yeah. stimulus. 
and then ask, are some males better at responding to the stimulus? And are those males the most successful? Um, okay. And so, you know, are some more responsive and, and are those males most successful? And so we've been trying to pin down the, de the degree to which that's important. And in a few different systems, certainly in the Bowerbirds, the ability to put on these intense displays, these really vigorous, you know, buzzing and whirring and churring dances that the males do, and their ability to respond to the female were about equally important in explaining variation among males and success. Uh, and so in the sage grouse, um, we haven't been able to pin down the exact fraction quite as well, but both traits are also important there. So. Um, so I think that these are, they're important traits. I mean, when we look at all these other kind of classic sexually selected traits, and then we, we measure variation among individuals, and we measure variation in mating success, we're often explaining, you know, 5 to 30% of the variation in mating success with those sort of classic sexually selected traits. So there's a lot going on that's not just about bright colors and songs mm -hmm. and dances. So I think that's another big important a... part of it. Can you give a concrete example of um, like how a male might modify what he's doing in, in the satin bowerbirds? So, so like what what sorts of modifications are they doing? Yeah. So, um, well, so in satin bowerbirds, the male so he builds the bower. The female stands inside the bower. Um, so there's two walls made of sticks. The female stands in between, and then he builds a little dance platform right out in front. And so they're very close together. Uh, you know, the female is just a few inches away from the male and he's dancing right in front of her with this really, you know, he puffs up his feathers, which birds often do to intimidate each other and look bigger. And he's going, you know, he's right in her face doing these very startling kind of motions right in her face. And so when a female first arrives, she's often pretty jumpy and she'll stay upright and kind of stay a little back from the male. And um, males that aren't paying attention to that and then just dive right in with these really intense displays will scare the female. Sometimes it's they'll scare the female bizarre. away. Other times you'll just see the female startling all the time. And so the more a male's doing that, the less likely he is to convince her to mate. And okay. so what, what we see is that the successful guys will start out with these sort of low intensity displays while the female is standing upright. And then as she's standing there watching the male, she'll sort of settle in and crouch downwards. And that's when the successful guys ramp up the intensity of their display. Whereas these unsuccessful guys just sort of blast away at a mediocre level all the time, regardless of what the female's doing. And so that, that's one really, you know, clear case where the successful guys seem to be better at putting on the show when it is going to actually um, convince right. the female as opposed to scare her away. Um, the successful guys, or I mean, all the males also respond to startling itself. So if a female does a startle behavior, then they'll, they'll tone it down right then too. So that's another way in which they respond. to jump in and ask about another kind of theoretical thing that you've you've alluded to and that that's about um information theory and noise and communication systems mm -hmm. and i was i was really like struck and delighted by reading this stuff in your papers because i've thought about that a little bit in my own systems um so we've we've written a little bit about communication theory in plant insect communication and thinking about sort of all the sources of noise that can contaminate those systems and a little bit in terms of um, like the evolution of internal homeostasis. So there's lots of noise happening inside bodies and that noise can contaminate 
the signals that are going from one entity to another inside your body and, you know, disrupt homeostasis essentially. Um, and I, I wondered like, uh, you know, how much are you drawing on this sort of formal communication theory? What, what are the sources of noise and how can the signalers and the receivers deal with, deal with that noise? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. And there's two, there's two big components to it. So there's the sort of, you know, the, the noise that comes from within the individual that you were just, just talking about. And, um, and to me, that's exciting because it's one source of variability that we see out there. There's just a huge amount of variation among individuals that we see out there and understanding how much of that is due to learning and experience and genes and um, all these different components is is really an, int- you know, it's an interesting question. And some of that may just come about through this sort of noisy, these sort of random processes in it's kind development. Of noise and won't ever be explicable, right? It's just Yeah. Noise. Um, I yeah. mean, it's... It, there may it may be explicable, but but we we don't we can't understand it necessarily yet, right? Um, so there there might, it might be that we can pin that down, but there's just so much complexity during development that there's probably going to be some amount of this we're never going to explain. But there's been some really interesting research. I have a, a colleague, Kate Laskowski, who's just about to start um, as a professor here at UC Davis, who has this great system of clonally reproducing Amazon mollies. So it's a type of fish um, and they're all clones. So they're basically genetically identical, but you can put them in, so you can raise them in different environments and, and then look at their behavior. And so she can raise them in the exact same environment and they're genetically the same and then put them in these different behavioral scenarios. And there's still a huge amount of variation among individuals in how they respond. And so, um, so there's just some amount of this that is is not explained by those simple <laughs> simple things that we think about of you know genes and environment. There's a lot of other stuff going on, um, mm-hmm. and there's some really cool work that's that's pinning that down now. And um, the fact that we can do this in fish and look at some really interesting um, and complex behavioral scenarios is really exciting. Yeah. But yeah. there's work being done in fruit flies and lots of different other systems that that are that's trying to break that down. So that's one way that noise can come out and and it would make it, you know, if a female is trying to assess something about the quality of the male, um, which, you know, sometimes that might be important. Other times that might not be what's really driving that system. But um, but that's going to make it much harder for her to assess his underlying quality. Right. It's just yeah, going to basically yeah, yeah. make it, it adds noise to the signal. Right. It makes it harder to to see those things. Um, and then the other component of noise is in the environment. So once an animal produces a signal, it has to propagate through the environment and arrive at the receiver. And that propagation, there's all sorts of things that the signal can run into. And, you know, once it gets it to the receiver, the receiver has to be able to detect it with the background. And so if it's a visual signal and it's a, you know, a little lizard doing push-ups on a, on a um, tree branch, then movement of leaves in the wind can make that almost impossible to see. So that we could mm-hmm. think of as visual noise. Whereas if it's a song, then we can think of it as, you know, acoustic noise where yeah. there's wind or um, more and more people are interested in the impacts of human activities. So, yeah. you know, traffic and urban yeah. noise and all these things can interfere with those signals propagating and influence how those signals get used, whether they work or not, and potentially influence the evolution of, of those kinds of signals. Yeah. So, so let's talk first about natural noise, maybe in the context of like lex, maybe sage grouse lex. So mm-hmm. do those lex run in different ways on like windy days versus not windy days or... 
you know, in some physical environments that are simple versus complex physical environments that might interfere with the way the signals are, are propagating. Do, do, do the outcomes of the LEX and the kind of advantages that accrue to particular males, do those depend on those kinds of noise? Um, I, I wish I could answer all those questions. So these are things yeah. that we've been, we've been really interested in, and um, we haven't been able to get at all of them, but um, we have, we, we've recorded noise pollution, uh, and in particular for the sage grouse, one of the big sources of noise out in a lot of their range is energy development. And so mm. we have this sort of industrial noise, and if we play that at some leks and not others, then the birds will avoid the leks where there is noise. So one of the ways that this has an impact on the animals is that they simply avoid the noise. And, um, and that means that they've effectively lost habitat that is otherwise good. Right. So and, it, it and these means, are noise from like gas wells out yeah, distributed yeah. across the Midwest. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Natural gas drilling, but it's a pretty standard issue industrial noise. And so mm -hmm. it would be true for whatever other kind of industrial noise might happen. And traffic noise is another another source of noise that can that can sort of move animals away, but it can also change their signaling behavior. So um, one of the things that comes out of information theory, the sort of classic information theory, is that when you're communicating in a noisy channel, uh, one thing that you can do is to increase repetition. So it's not every one of these signals is going to make it through. So you repeat it more often, um, or you try to make the signal more different than the background noise. And so it can be distinct from that background noise. Um, or if the background noise is intermittent, then you wait for the quiet gaps. So these are all things that come out of information theory. And people have gone out and tested whether birds are doing that. And, and there's examples of all of those things. So of increasing repetition and noise. And we saw that with the sage grouse, that when we were playing noise at them and, and it's sort of continuous noise, we see them strutting more um, and, and to get the message across. Um, whereas when it's intermittent noise, so the sound of a vehicle passing, they'll strut less when there's the sound of a vehicle passing and then strut more in the gaps. So they're kind of, you know, strutting when it's quiet, which is exactly what we would do if you're trying to talk to someone in a truck starts driving by on the road, you right. wait until Just it passes and then keep, keep yeah. going. Right. Um, do, yeah. Gail, do, or, do animals sort of agree about what noise is? Are, are species <laughs> sort of, this is the decibel threshold where it's all bad and I'm going to change my behavior? Or That must be pretty variable among species. Among species, it's hugely variable. Um, and yeah. we're, there are so few species where we know how loud is too loud that we're, we're not yet at a point where we can do very effective comparative studies to try to look for patterns. Um, yeah, because it's just it's a hard thing to do to find out how loud is too loud. And we just don't have enough cases. But um, but we you know, we've seen in some songbird. Right. I mean, there's starlings that are building nests in traffic lights. <laughs> clearly are some species fine can handle it. Yeah. Okay. For some of them. Yes. <laughs> so they're clearly doing fine. Um, there's other birds that seem to be more sensitive to humans, but they can handle noise up to about 50 decibels, which is, um, it's actually kind of what your house would be like if there's things going on, like a dishwasher or, you know, stuff, stuff going on. It's not super loud. Um, or, you know, outdoors in the suburbs or something is probably around that during the middle of the day. Um, and so they can they can handle that just fine. The sage grouse that I study live in such quiet landscapes. When there's no wind out there, it is just 
dead silent. And, uh, and so any noise that's out there just dominates the soundscape yeah, yeah, in the same yeah. way that when you're laying in bed at night and there's the ticking clock, it's just like, you know, <laughs> it can make you crazy. Um, and so their threshold of impact for noise is just insanely slow. So the research that, um, I've been involved with, um, recently has been trying to pinpoint that threshold and it's somewhere around 25 decibels, which wow. you really can't find anything even that quiet if you're in an area with human development around because it's just so Jeez. quiet but out in the sagebrush sea out in the you know interior west there's lots of areas that get that quiet and they're very sensitive picky birds unfortunately for them and so their threshold is just totally different Another crazy question for you. So my lab does a little bit with light pollution. And one of the things that we've thought about doing recently is paying attention to the spectra. You know, certain light, small wavelengths are particularly bad for multiple reasons. Is there any evidence? Has anybody looked at the other characteristics of sound to know if there's a protective space where more decibels could be tolerated because of changes in other characteristics of the sound? Could you protect wildlife through manipulations of that form? Um, I, well, so what, what we found in the sage rest was we played some noise that was just the sort of industrial noise that I was describing. It's continuous 24 mm seven -hmm. all the time that's happening. Mm -hmm. And then we played the sound of vehicles passing on random shuffle on a, you know, it's basically on an iPhone random shuffle or I, iPod yeah. random shuffle. Um, and so there were quiet gaps and then the sound of vehicles. And we found it way more annoying to be in the lek where it was just continuous industrial noise blasting at us. But um, that had about half the effect on the birds as the intermittent noise. So mm -hmm. when we compared leks where we weren't playing noise, that were our control leks, to these noise playback leks, we found a 73% decline in attendance on the road noise playback leks and a 29% decline in the, the continuous noise playback leks. And so both of them have an impact, but the impact was much worse with the intermittent noise. And, and so that could be because they, you can't habituate as well to a noise that's intermittent and unpredictable. Um, and I mean, clearly they're not totally habituating because there was still an impact of the continuous noise, but that's one possibility is that it's just more stressful when things are unpredictable, um, or they might have a learned aversion to the sound of vehicle traffic, right? So there's a few different, different, you know, um, possible explanations for that. But, but in that case, the characteristics of the noise did seem to have a big impact on how impactful it was on the birds. Um, but both of them did have an impact. So, um, right. so you can, and there's other cases where, um, where, you know, basically if your signal is very similar to the background noise, it's going to be harder to detect, right? So if the background noise is of the same sort of pitch range as the signal, it's just going to blend in. Uh, and so one of the things that people have found is that birds will increase the pitch of their song, their frequency in areas where there's a lot of human noise, which tends to be low pitch. And so, um, so they're basically differentiating their signal from the background noise. Um, and, uh, and so that's another thing that we might expect to find. The sage grouse are very unlikely to do that. We haven't, um, we're, yeah, we haven't yet fully tested that, but they're very unlikely to do that because they just don't have that kind of flexibility in their sound production mechanism. Whereas songbirds, there's evidence that quite a few species are doing that. And so in that case, the, the degree to which the signal overlaps, um, the noise might have an impact. And so you can imagine if we were able to, make the noise lower in frequency or filter out right. some of the frequencies that overlap more than it would have a lower yeah, impact effects, on yeah. the yeah. on the animals so there are definitely some ways that we might reduce these impacts by 
you know, changing the characteristics of the noise, but less is probably almost always the best <laughs> is yeah. to just use quieter um, generators and um, engines and things like that and have more insulation. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, these are, it's a complex problem. So in, um, you know, road noise, for example, you can have a really, really smooth surface of pavement and it'll make very little noise, but it also has very little traction. And so you could have more, you know, injuries, car injuries and crashes and sliding and things like that. So if you increase the, um, the traction, it's going to be louder. So you may imagine that you could put in sound barriers along the sides of roadways, but that's going to create barriers to animal movement that wouldn't have been there before. So, um, yeah, it's a complex set of trade-offs. It's a complex set of trade-offs. Um, but yeah. making quieter vehicles is, is, <laughs> clearly yeah, yeah. gonna help hey, let, let me ask one other noise question so you've also done this this super interesting stuff on effects of noise on nestling birds along roadways and um like i know about andy crina's study mm -hmm. of white crown sparrows and you have some other more recent things and and maybe this is not about signaling or sexual selection but you know what what are the effects of noise on on baby birds and, and why yeah so some of my graduate students have been um have been working on this and uh and so on tree swallows recently, we've done some studies on tree swallows. So they, they live in, in nest boxes. And so my graduate student, Allison and Jayen, set up this project where she was playing noise at some um, nest boxes and not at others and comparing. And she found impacts on development. So um, they don't grow as big as fast uh, and, um, and also increases in or, or changes in um, their uh, hormones that are associated with the stress response, um, corticosterone and, and, um, and also increased telomere attrition. So this is basically something that's associated with aging. Um, and so uh, there's all sorts of physiological impacts on these developing baby birds, even though this is a species that we tend to see in rural areas pretty commonly. So this is not a super sensitive species like the sage grouse, but, um, mm -hmm. but there's still impacts of highway noise on these birds. And it does change the parents' behavior a little bit. And so some of the impacts on the kids could be because of changes in how the parents are responding. Some and, might and be direct. Kids, yeah, right. So, so the kids partly are being affected by their parents' behavior, but they're, mm -hmm. they're also presumably perceiving these sounds directly and they're just scared and like these are the physiological fallouts of being scared or, um, or it could be fear. It's, uh, uh, I mean, it's somehow it's increasing stress. It's not, I, it's not necessarily a fear response. Um, uh -huh. but that, I mean, it's an interesting question. Um, I don't actually know exactly how we would pin down <laughs> whether that stress is, is truly a fear response, um, oh, or not. Um, yeah. I'm sure somebody does know how to do that, but I haven't really thought about it. Somebody will have an opinion anyway. Kinda, yeah. um, but I mean, you can look for things like startling and things like that that, would, that are associated with, yeah. with fear, um, but it's, it definitely seems to be stressing them out. Um, and so, uh, and it also influences where they settle, so parents settle. So um, Allison and her students did this uh, cool study where they, you know, they played noise at some of the nest boxes and not others before the birds arrive. And the, the first birds to arrive take the quiet boxes. And then the later birds end up filling in the louder boxes. And so 
Um, if you just go out there after everyone's settled, you can say, well, they don't seem to be avoiding noise because all these boxes are settled. But when you actually look at the pattern, you see that those are the least desirable habitats, yeah, right? right? So right. humans are a perfect example of that. We don't, we don't do well with noise either. There's all sorts of evidence of noise impacts on humans. There's, I can't remember. It was like, you know, 10% increase in heart attacks with every 10%, you know, 10 decibel increase in noise or something. And we're the ones making it. You would think we'd be fine with it, but we're, we're not. Um, there's, and there's deficits in learning and other changes in areas near airports. But, you know, you've, if you were to look at human settlement patterns, there's plenty of people living around airports. We're not avoiding them, but the vet property values are lower, <laughs> right? So there's, um, you know, there's, there's a version, but, um, but you don't see it if you just look where the animals are. You really have to see kind of where, where we're preferring to be. So let's stick on this theme about uh, people. Um, what about sexual selection in humans? Is it still occurring? And how are our, I mean, especially the noise, this is really intriguing with, um, I don't know if the changing way that we interact socially, given Facebook and Twitter and those types of things, can necessarily count as noise. <laughs> I think a lot, a lot of people might count it that way. Depends on if you're old and crotchety like me. <laughs> do, you, do you know this thing, Twitter art? Have you heard of Twitter? No, no, no idea. So, no, I mean, do, do what, what's the active research on sexual selection and any particular work involving noise? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. I don't actually know the answer to it. I, I have not. I don't follow that much of the research on humans. Um, okay. And so I don't know exactly which traits are, are chosen in humans and whether noise might affect that. I'm not sure exactly how noise by itself would would come into play, but... Um, the one thing that, um, I mean, I do know has been researched human-wise has to do with uh, the MHC, the Major Histocompatibility Complex, and sweaty shirts, which is always one of my undergrad's favorite stories when I talk about that, so... Well, I can... As far as I remember, they basically asked um, men to wear T-shirts without deodorant for a certain amount of time, and then put those white T-shirts in Ziploc bags and had a bunch of women sniff the t-shirts and rate them for attractiveness and um and individuals tend to, to to rate more attractive those that had more different mhc loci than themselves so yeah. basically yeah. the mhc is this major histocompatibility complex that has to do with um, the immune system and so um having more variability there helps you detect more foreign bodies, right? So, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, so could be a stronger immune response. And so having an attraction to somebody different than yourself means that the kids are going to have more variability. So that's the, that's the idea behind yeah. it. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, if you can throw on deodorant and wash your t-shirt every day, then you could imagine that in our modern age with everybody like, you know, showering frequently and wearing lotions and deodorant and all this stuff that we actually don't smell each other as, I don't know what the word is, as robustly as we might have, <laughs> you know, 500 years ago, right? Yeah, uh, I would agree. Uh, there, I, I remember, when, <laughs> so when I teach this in my animal communication class, I always show some of the advertisements for people who have tried to monetize this, <laughs> this sweaty t-shirt effect, <laughs> where they have these sort of 
you know, basically these, they arrange these sort of, um, I don't know if it's like a party or something where everyone smells each other's like in a, you know, neutral way. And then people are paired up by a set. I mean, what a ridiculous idea. That is definitely <laughs> not, I just don't see that improving our ability to pair up according to mate compatibility. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, so, so one thing we ask uh, uh, almost all of our guests is just to to look forward, you know, five or ten years, and to tell us what what are the big ideas that you're most excited about, or the biggest new techniques that are going to affect the way your research goes. Yeah, um, I I mean I've just been really interested in this question of what is a preference, a mating preference, and I know, and I say female preference because that's often what I end up studying. But of course, that can be in either males or females that there's a preference. And so what is it? What causes that? I think we're, we're getting to a point where we can answer that in a much more interesting way. And, um, you know, people have been interested in what they call the genetic architecture of this for, for quite a while now, um, at least a few decades. So trying to understand how that, you know, what is a preference genetically and, you know, in the, in the genes. Um, but there's, there's all sorts of other levels to which, you know, we can look at that and, and what are the parts of the brain that are involved in preference? Um, my cats are just getting into a fight behind me. I don't know if, that's, if you're picking up that sound, but, um, you know, there's some snarling going on there. It's all good. Um, <laughs> the biology podcast is fine. It adds a natural element. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm just really interested in this because the, you know, if you think about bird song, um, this, same brain regions seem to be involved with the production, the motor production of the song that, that are also involved in the preference for the song in the female. So the male is, is um, you know, performing the song and moving his bill in a particular, you know, motion. <laughs> and, uh, and that is, you know, goes along with um, the song that he's learned. And the female, you know, may have the same song preference, but it's the same part of the brain that's responding to it. Um, and we don't know how often that's true, but in a few cases, at least, there seem to be the same brain regions. And um, in the female, it's not associated with motor patterns of bill movement, but there's a really cool study that shows that that region of the brain is, you know, there's a, a direct line to the cloaca, which is basically the, you know, female <laughs> reproductive organ, right? So, um, and so you can see a response in the, um, in the female genitalia, wow. basically from that, from wow. stimulation of that same brain region. And that, yeah. that is going to be uh, a very different kind of evolution than if uh, we're talking about color pattern in the male. So if a female has a preference for a particular color pattern, then the mechanism that produces that color pattern in the male is going to be fundamentally different than the mechanism that pr produces the preference for it in the female, because there's just not, there's not some shared brain region that would be involved yeah, yeah. in each. The only, the, I mean, there, there's a few ways that there could be some links, like the, um, you know, the sensitivity of the eyes that, you know, the, um, the diet can affect how sensitive our eyes are, and it can also affect the expression of color traits. So there might be some sort of links there, but there's probably going to be just fundamentally different ways that, that traits evolve when there's a shared mechanism between the display and the preference versus a totally different mechanism. And, um, and I think we're just, we're just beginning to get to the point where we can look at, at the mechanism of preference and multiple levels. So the genes, the neurobiology and um, development and, um, you know, potential for imprinting and other kinds of things to, to really get at that. So I, I find that really exciting. I think there's some cool, cool work going on in that area. 
that's a fantastic place to stop, I think. Yeah, I think so. Um, unless there's anything else that you want to say, anything yeah. else that you want to bring up about well, only, your own research or sexual selection? The only other thing or... that I that I normally just want to make sure comes up in these kinds of things, but I feel like we might have touched it, and that is just the um, the real world relevance for basic research like this, because yeah. um, a lot of this kind of stuff can seem pretty esoteric, right? <laughs> like exactly how do <laughs> right. males respond to subtle variation in in right. female behaviors in sage grouse um, is a is a pretty specific and esoteric question, right? <laughs> and it can seem very abstract, and um, and I always just want to emphasize the. Um, the usefulness of, of basic research, because you never know wh- what kinds of questions are going to lead to useful answers. And there's some great studies, for example, in, um, in you know, the study of birdsong and the development of birdsong has is been very important in being applied to learning about speech pathologies and the development of, of speech in humans and um, social behaviors and all sorts of animals are used as models to study um, uh, you know, um, things that can affect social behavior in humans like autism. And so there's all sorts of really interesting ways that studies of these sort of basic behaviors have applied. And in my research, it's been mostly through conservation. And so, you know, we're studying the sage grouse. And one of the big things we're interested in is how they use sound to attract mates and um, how they um, adjust and change their sounds. And all of that has informed the conservation-related work that we do and trying to understand how noise might affect them. And um, so I always just want to emphasize that that this stuff, even when it seems like we're totally, we are pursuing our curiosity <laughs> by looking at these kinds of questions. It is about our curiosity, but um, but that can be extremely useful. Sexual selection has been a powerful force shaping life on Earth, creating all sorts of diversity that natural selection alone would probably have weeded out long ago. In the extreme, sexual selection has led to our conception of beauty. We find other humans beautiful, but we also have similar feelings for music and wine and a mountain range, a dolly, and sometimes sage grouse and bowerbirds. Whether female butterflies also find particular males beautiful will be hard to figure out. But the possibility has motivated a vigorous debate. One scientist that does think a lot about beauty is Yale biologist Richard Prum. Prum's book, The Evolution of Beauty, proposes that female aesthetic choices alone have led to exaggerated male traits. Beauty, he says, is just the consequence of runaway or fisherian selection between the traits of one sex and the preference of the other. In his mind, things are just beautiful because of accidents in history. But Gail's take is different, as you can hear in our special interview with her that we'll post on Patreon next week. In a nutshell, she wants to know why we find other things, not obviously related to mate choice, beautiful too. Yeah, Rick Prom is arguing that this Fisherian selection is uniquely powerful in driving the evolution of beauty in the world. One of the things we point out is that um, that there are all sorts of things that we find beautiful that have nothing to do with, with mating, and, and it just... It, it's, it's important, but it's not as all-powerful as I think Rick makes it out to be. To hear more from Gail, please support us on Patreon. When you sign up, you'll gain access to this extra bit with her, as well as other content which you can see on our site, 
patreon.com slash bigbio. Also, remember that we're running a special offer on Patreon right now. Anyone joining the $10 tier or above by September 12th will get to join a live video chat with us later in the fall to help shape Season 3. On the next episode of Big Biology, we'll talk about human behavior, and in particular the new field of evolutionary psychiatry with Randy Nessie. Randy has some fascinating ideas about why we get depressed and anxious, why we self-deceive, and how we can use an evolutionary mindset to improve our mental health. Thanks to Matt Blois for producing this episode. Haley Hansen, Chloe Ramsey, Sarah Gozinski, and Lexi Salzer manage our social media channels. Michael Levine helps with social media and Patreon. And as always, Steve Lane manages our website. Field audio recordings were provided by Gail Patristelli. Music on the episode is from Poddington Bear. Thanks to the University of South Florida College of Public Health for financial support.